Hi everyone, welcome here. We're so glad you've joined us for our series on Through the Lens of Jesus. And uh, the question I want to start off with today is, do we as Christians today follow Jesus or the Old Testament? Because I don't think as Christians we're very clear on what the answer to that question is supposed to be. And obviously it's going to be a little bit complicated because the Old Testament we know is God's word and it's important. And yet at the same time, most of the laws, almost all the laws in the Old Testament, we don't follow. So the Old Testament tells us to sacrifice animals. None of us does that, okay? The Old Testament tells us to put people to death who are working on Saturday. We certainly don't do that, okay? The Old Testament tells us that if a woman's having her period, she's not supposed to go to church, okay? And if anyone happens to shake her hand or touch her in some way, they also can't go to church for a week, okay? These are all things that are in the Old Testament that obviously we don't follow. So are we is the Old Testament, we know it's God's word, we know it's scripture, but what are we supposed to be following? Where do we get our guidelines for how to live today? Because these laws are not minor pieces of the Old Testament, okay? By some counts, there's 600 and some, 613 laws, rules, and commands in the Old Testament, okay? The vast majority of them we do not follow today. The vast majority, well over 90%. In fact, as Christians today, we basically only follow the Ten Commandments, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, uh, and a few others. But even with the Ten Commandments, we're not consistent because commandment number four is all about the Sabbath and how you're not supposed to work on Saturday. So clearly... The Old Testament laws, rules, and commands are not for us today. We don't follow them, okay? Now, someone might say, well, there's a lot more to the Old Testament than just the rules and commands. That's true. Someone might bring up the stories of the Old Testament. There's many stories in the Old Testament about God's people, the people of Israel, Abraham, Moses, David, all these people. So we don't, we don't follow the rules and commands, but we're supposed to follow the examples of God's people in the Old Testament. Except, wait, no, we're not. A lot of those stories are horrific, or at least if we're going to follow their example, we're only following pieces of them, and we got to be super careful because even the good guy, there's a lot of stories about good guys in the Old Testament that are really nasty that we don't want to apply to our lives at all. I mean, just this last week, I was meditating on Genesis 34, and we could pick out a ton of other ones, but just this week, I happened to be meditating on Genesis 34. You might want to write that one down if you want to go and meditate on it for your uh, devotions this week, okay? Genesis 34 has a very fascinating and disturbing story, okay? It's about Jacob, the father of, of the Israelites. Who would, he, his name would later change to Israel, and that's how the nation of Israel came to have its name. And uh, two of his sons, Levi and Simeon, and a daughter, one of his daughters named Dinah. Now, in this story, the daughter Dinah gets raped by one of the Canaanite locals, a man by the name of Shechem, whose dad is essentially the mayor of the town of Shechem, okay? Now, after this assault, this horrible deed, Shechem's dad comes to Jacob and offers him a ton of money so that his son can marry Dinah, who he's assaulted. And Jacob says, yes, okay? So Dinah goes to live with Shechem. Well, Levi and Simeon come home and hear about this and they're ticked off. So they now put into, they put together this plan and they go to Shechem and Shechem's dad and they say, okay, okay, okay. This marriage is all good with us based on one thing, one condition. All of the adult men in Shechem have to get circumcised. Shechem and his dad, Shechem must really have wanted Dinah to be his wife because Shechem and his dad think this is a great idea. They say yes. So all the men, all the men in Shechem, okay, this is a Bible story, okay, otherwise I wouldn't tell it. Um, they all get circumcised and of course they're lying around in their beds for the next couple of days in agony, okay, 
And while they're lying in their beds in agony, Levi and Simeon go into the town and murder. They slaughter every single adult male in the town of Shechem, okay? That's the end of Genesis 34. Jacob gives them a quick rebuke, and then the next chapter just goes on and with the heading in my Bible of, and God blesses Jacob. And you read that story and you go, what are we supposed to take from this story? What are we learn, supposed to learn from God? Well, wait, are we supposed to follow this example? And there's a bunch of stories like that in the Old Testament. And clearly, we don't follow those stories in any way. We look at them. A lot of Christians are uncertain what to do with them. Like, let's maybe just not talk about those stories, just kind of move on. Okay, so we don't obey the commands and the laws and the rules of the Old Testament, except for just a few, and we're not consistent, okay? Um, we don't follow the examples. I mean, there's thing, there are good pieces we can pull out of some of the stories and examples of God's people in the Old Testament, but mixed in with a whole lot of gross and weird and bad. So the question is, again, are we supposed to, as Christians today, do we follow Jesus or the Old Testament? And the answer very clearly is... Jesus. Now the question is, though, why does this make us feel uncomfortable? Because I, I can, I know a whole bunch of you are watching right now and you're going, oh, where is he going? Because I believe the Old Testament is God's word. I've said that many times and I believe it's important. God has given us his word and we need it. And yet here I am telling you and showing you examples throughout the Old Testament of how we clearly don't follow it. Well, the early church, you know, wrestled with these issues as well. And I want to take you to Acts 15. Fascinating story. Paul and Barnabas uh, have planted a church in Syria, and these New Testament Christians are also wrestling with the role of the Old Testament in their lives. And so here they are in Syria, Acts 15, verse 1, and let's just read how they wrestle with this issue, okay? Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas start a church in Syria, some zealous, passionate Jewish Christians come in from Judea, okay? And we're teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're teaching that whenever, you know, the New Testament talks about circumcision, it's like all those mosaic laws that go with it. The ceremonial laws and the eating laws and the, and the different things, okay? And, uh, and, and of course, that makes sense, right? So these are Jewish believers. They love Jesus, okay? They've become Christians, but they've grown up their whole lives. The Old Testament is God's word. If you want to show that you're passionate for God, you obey the Old Testament, so they come to Syria, they want to help out, right? So they tell the Christian, look, this is God's word. Paul agrees this is God's word. So we have to do these things. God's word says we have to get circumcised. You know, the Old Testament says that. The Old Testament says we do these things. There's a bunch of rules we have to keep to prove to God and everyone how, uh, how passionate we are about him, okay? Verse 2. Now, what did Paul and Barnabas think about this teaching, okay? Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate... Okay, blow up, okay? They had a big fight. They had, you know, arguments, repeated arguments, okay, with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they had a huge argument. They debate this question because Paul and Barnabas are like, no way. These Christians don't have to obey all that stuff, okay? And these Jewish Christians are arguing back. So they end up all heading out to Jerusalem, which, you know, it, that's a long, you know, this is obviously a big uh, argument because they couldn't just hop on a plane for half an hour and, and, and fly out there. They had to walk some days, okay? And then they go and have this huge conference with the apostles in Jerusalem, okay? And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but Peter, at one point in the conference, gets up and says this. Now, therefore, this is near the end of the conference, why are you putting God to the test? 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, that's a shocking thing for a Jewish believer like Peter, who has been zealous for the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures all his life. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter says, he's not saying that the Old Testament isn't God's will, but he's saying we can't put the, you know, or the, um, he's not saying that the Old Testament isn't God's word. It is God's word, and we need it for context of the story of Jesus, okay, and to show us some other things. But Peter says, why would we put this yoke, he calls God's word a yoke on the Gentile believers, when we ourselves couldn't follow all those laws, okay? So it's, it's a pretty crazy thing for a passionate, God-following Jewish believer to say, well, then a few verses later, the apostle James gets up and he concludes the conference, okay? The final conclusion of the conference. And he says this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain for things from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Okay? Now, wild. What the apostles don't do is wild. They give their lives to Christ. The Old Testament is the only Bible they have at this point, okay? And it is God's word. Paul affirms that in various places in the New Testament. It's God's word and we need it. And yet these apostles say about the Old Testament and all the laws and the commands and the stuff that are in there, they do not tell these new believers, here's what you need to do to be passionate for God. You need to read your Old Testament every day and make sure you do what it says. That is not what they say. In fact, they essentially say the opposite. They take the entire Old Testament scriptures, which are important, and they simplify them down to only four things. They take everything that's in the Old Testament, they just simplify it down to four things. They say, basically, don't, you know, sexual immorality, stay away from that. Stay away from idolatry, stay, don't drink blood, and stay away from strangled meat. And, and of course, we know, you know, there'd be obvious other, you know, things in there, like do not murder and things like that. But the point is, they just radically simplify. This is discipleship to the Gentile believers, okay? They say, you don't need to obey the Old Testament, okay? This is huge, okay? We have to be clear about this as Christians today, okay? We do not follow in the sense of how do, how do we live our lives. We do not follow the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God's word, yes. And it's good for us to know the context of the Jesus story, yes. And it shows us other things, as I showed you last week in the message. But we don't follow it. It's not our rule for living, okay? The New Testament, we go to Jesus to find out how we should live today. I want to just put that up on the screen. And we're going we're gonna to flesh this out a bit more because we need to be clear about this as believers, okay? So let me just put this up on the screen. The Old Testament spelled out, notice past tense, for ancient Israel, how they were supposed to live under the Old Covenant. The New Testament spells out for us today as Christians how we are supposed to live under the New Covenant. Now again, this is really important because I think the lack of clarity causes Christians sometimes to be confused as to what are the examples. We are not Abrahamians. We are not Davidians. We're not Mosesians. We're not following those men. We can learn some things from their stories, but we also have to be careful because there's a lot of, whoa, stuff we don't want to do from their lives. We are Christians because we're following Jesus. Very important. Now, I want to take you to one more passage, powerful passage, Galatians chapter 5 and Paul. 
And then we're going to see how do we bring the lens of Jesus to bear on the Old Testament and how is that going to set us free? Because some of the truths in Galatians 5 here and the lens of Jesus are going to set you free, okay? These truths are so essential. Galatians 5 verse 1, here's what Paul says. For freedom, this is a famous passage, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, this is a famous passage. I hear Christians, you know, quote this oftentimes. Uh, and often when Christians are quoting this verse, though, they're quoting it uh, not the way it's supposed, not, not, not how it means, okay? So a lot of Christians, when they quote this verse, for freedom Christ has set us free, they're talking about sin. Christ has set us free from sin. Now, absolutely, Jesus died to set us free from sin. That is certainly part of the reason why Jesus died on the cross. But let me tell you something, that's not what this passage is talking about. That's what other passages in the New Testament talk about. Galatians 1 is not talking about Jesus setting us free from sin. He set us free from something else as well. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, the slavery here is not sin. Let's see. What is the slavery Paul's talking about? Next verse. Verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept, what? Circumcision, okay? Christ will be of no advantage to you, okay? Now, remember, when Paul's talking about circumcision here, he's not, and I, and I can show you that in, and will in a bunch of the verses in Galatians 5, the circumcision is just representing a whole bunch of other laws as well from the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant. And these Galatians were trying to prove themselves to God. They were trying to be more spiritual. They were trying to show themselves as better Christians by obeying a bunch of laws. And Paul says, actually, Jesus died to set you free, not just from sin. That's other passages in the New Testament. Jesus died to set you free from the law, okay? Christ will be of no Advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Okay? So Paul is talking, you know, and, and Paul's not talking about those few laws in the Old Testament there, you know, moral laws, um, you know, like do not murder and do not commit adultery. Okay, but he's talking about the mass of external regulations. Okay, the things that 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 in the Old Testament were for you know uh, your relationship with God was based on a lot of these external rules about eating, about what you wore, about how you talk, clean and unclean, and all and circumcision and all these things. Jesus died to set us free from those things. Okay, and under the old covenant, those external regulations mattered, but under the new covenant, they don't. Okay, super important. Now, behavior still matters under the new covenant. Now, let's see this. Okay, so we jump ahead to verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, okay, but here, but I want you to notice something. In the Old Testament, you have this mass of external regulations. In the New Testament, things have been radically simplified and focused. And that's what I hope in this message, I hope to make radically clear to you. In your walk with Jesus, things need to be radically clear to us. What it is Jesus expects of us, okay? So here's what Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor un uncircumcision counts for anything. Those external rules and regulations, they don't count for anything. Because they don't touch the heart. But only one thing, faith working through love. Okay? Love is the central guiding ethic for the Christian life. Okay? Now, I, I want you just to sit on that verse there as it's on the screen for a second. Only one thing, faith working through love. Now, this is actually difficult. Now, a bunch of you are going to go, oh, I know this. I've been in church all my life and it's been preached to me before and yada, yada, yada. Okay? 
And I know that many of us have heard this truth over and over again. But here's the thing. I don't think we actually totally get it. I think it's actually hard for us. Pardon me for just a second. Oh, wow, that's strong. Um, I think it's actually difficult for us to actually accept the truth. And the reason it's different, difficult, now we do it with different laws. We don't necessarily do it with circumcision. Uh, you know, most of us aren't hinging our salvation on that one in particular. We build our own sets of, of external rules and regulations because as human beings, I'll tell you why. We desperately want to know. We want to measure, particularly in our culture. We're so used to measuring and counting everything. So we want to measure. We don't, we, it doesn't feel safe to us that God has accepted me, but I can't see I, I can't see a measuring stick somewhere where I can see how good I am with God. So we make rules about whatever it is. And every church has their own. How much you serve, how much you give, how much you pray, how much you do devotions, whatever it is. How disciplined you are. We want to have, have measuring sticks. And every church can kind of change it and be different and whatever. But we have measuring sticks. And how much do you do this or how much do you do that? Because then we, want, then we can feel good. Okay, I'm doing good with God. We're just... It's the, it's the way we're wired, okay? And many of these things are helpful things, whether it be fasting or serving or giving or praying or reading your Bible. These are all can all be helpful, wonderful things. But, but when you think and the church begins to think and people begin to think that these things are measurements, external actions, disciplines are things that measure how much of a child of God you are, it is actually going to be a sickness on your soul. That's why Paul is rebuking it here in Galatians. It always turns into judgment. The moment you start trying to measure yourself, you're also going to start to measure others. It's going to turn to judging, and you're going to actually lose the actual spirit of the thing, which is love. Now, here's the thing you have to understand about your status with Jesus. Here's the thing you have to understand about your status as a child of God. Child of God is not something that where you can be more or less of it. It's either yes or it's no. I mean, my children, think of this. The moment my children were born, they were, became my children. Well, even before they were born. At the moment they were conceived, right? That's when life starts. But the moment my children were conceived, they were my children, okay? Now, what can change that? Based on they had a good day, they had a bad day, do they become less my kid? Like today I'm 40% dad's kid. And, and, but, or, but, you know, two days ago I had a really good day and I'm like, felt really good about myself. So I must be 90% dad's kid. That's ridiculous. You can't be 30%. You can't be 50%. You can't be 80%. You're just my kid. You're, you're either my kid or, or you're not my kid, but you're, they're my kids. You can't in your relationship. Think of how ridiculous this must look from God's vantage point when we default to our human, to our human default, which is, I want to measure myself so I can feel good about myself, so I can compare myself to others maybe and feel good about them. Or I compare myself to others and I feel inferior to them. We're very competitive. We're very measury in our culture and we just bring it right into our spirituality. And then we feel good about ourselves. Well, I'm doing really good as a child of God now. Or I'm not doing so good as a child of God. Look, you can't do better or worse at it. You're just a child of God. If you've put your faith in Jesus, faith working through love, that is what makes you a child of God. Is Jesus' work in you, not your work for Jesus. Okay? Now, again, um, by, by the way, I want to just say this. Practically speaking, think about this. 
Think of how many of us at various times in our lives are intimidated by certain people because we feel they're spiritual. We're intimidated by someone because of how many hours they whatever, how much money they give, how much devotions they have, how much of the Bible they've memorized. All wonderful things. Memorizing the Bible is wonderful. Giving money is wonderful. Praying is wonderful. But we get intimidated by people based on external things that they do. Which, if you want to know what actually, when you're in the presence of someone who's being changed by Jesus, you're not going to be in awe of the things they do. You're going to be, you're going to be touched by the heart of who they are. They're kind. They're gentle. They're good. I'll prove it to you. Behavior, okay, does matter. Verse 19, we're still in Galatians 5. True spirituality. What does it look like? Now, the works of the flesh are evident, okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so behavior still matters. But notice, these are destructive behaviors. We're not talking about external rules and regulations to make yourself spiritual for God. Sexual immorality is destructive. When you commit adult, when a person commits adultery, how many couples and people have I sat down with over the years of ministry and prayed with and the damage they've done to themselves, to their spouse, to their children? It's damaging. It's death. It's painful. It's destructive. We're not talking about external rules and regulations here. We're talking about love. We're talking about, you know, morality. Now, the evidence of the Spirit's work is not dedication to rules, but a change in heart. Look at this. Okay, but the fruit of the Spirit is, look at this, the fruit of the Spirit. And notice what it is not. The fruit of the Spirit is you're going to give all your money away. The fruit of the Spirit is you're going to go overseas and do missions, even though wonderful thing. Thank God he calls people to do that, and that's amazing. But that's not the fruit of the Spirit, isn't that you're going to go out and sacrifice everything, you're going to give everything away, you're going to spend all your time, uh, you know, praying and evangelizing and those sorts. No, that's not, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not external things. It's internal heart things coming out, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. You want to know when you're in the presence of someone where Jesus is at work in that person? You're going to be attracted to that person because of how they are towards you. They're going to care about you, okay? Different personalities might come across in different ways, but they're going to put you first. They're going to be gentle. They're going to listen. They're going to be kind. You're going to have joy, okay? That's what Jesus does to people. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, okay? Really, really important. Now, that brings us back to the original question, which is the lens of Jesus and understanding discipleship. Because we're, you know, we know this is God's word. The Bible is God's word. We need it for discipleship. But it's a little bit complicated. How does this book apply to us discipleship-wise? How do we read the Old Testament? What are we supposed to get out of it? And we should be looking at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Okay? That's really important. Okay? Because the Old Testament was, you know, was a guidebook for the Israelites into the Old Covenant how to live. The New Testament tells us how to live today. So when we want to go into the Old Testament for discipleship, we want to read it through the lens of Jesus. So now what does that mean practically speaking? Well, number one point. Old Testament stories are descriptive, not prescriptive. Super important. Old Testament stories are descriptive, not 
prescriptive. That means Old Testament stories tell us what people did, not what they should have done. Old Testament stories tell us what people did, not what we should do today. That is super important, okay? So just because you read in here that David did something and you're like, well, I guess God approves of it because it was David. No, 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 no. The, Bi the Bible shares story, nasty stories of things that God's people did, okay? If we go back to Genesis 34, you know, and Jacob, and I put the lens. So what we do is when we read these stories, we put the lens because the New Testament makes it clear. The Old Testament doesn't make it clear. But the New Testament makes it clear. The fruit of the Spirit is what Jesus looks like. It's what Jesus loves. It's who Jesus is. It's who God is. So we take the fruit of the Spirit. We take love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And we put that over top of the story. So we put the fruit of the Spirit from the New Testament over top of Genesis 34. And this horrific story about rape and lies and circumcision and murder. And we put the fruit of the Spirit over there and we go, did God like, was he approving of what Jacob and his sons did? And the answer is categorically 100% no. He was disturbed. He was more disturbed and grieved than you and I are today because his heart is more sensitive and more pure. He was horrified by that story. And this is true throughout the Old Testament. Wherever you see violence, rape, adultery, polygamy, and slavery, wherever you see it, even though God's people sometimes do it. Wherever you see it in the Old Testament, you know, take the fruit of the Spirit and take who you see of Jesus in the New Testament. Put it on top of that Old Testament story and you will see that God is horrified by those things. Now, the question is, well, why didn't the Old Testament writers clearly condemn these things then? Like the end of Genesis 34. If you're going to put Genesis 34 in there at all, why doesn't the writer of Genesis at the end put, disgusting, Jacob was evil and God was mad. He doesn't do that. When David, you know, has all this polygamy, his whole life he spends in polygamy and he never feels guilty for it. He confesses other sins. He never confesses the way he treats women and, and the mess his family has made a, a, as a result of it. And the, the writers of scripture never condemn him for it. They never say, David was wrong to do this. The reason we know it's wrong is because we take the fruit of the spirit and we take Jesus from the New Testament. We put it on top of the passage and we go, mind blow, gross, Okay. So the question is, though, why don't the Old Testament authors make it more clear to us? So just a couple of things. And, and these are complicated questions that huge books could be written. But let me just tell you a couple of things. First of all, culturally, in ancient times, you know, the, 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 the writers of Scripture, they, they didn't tend to put in a lot of moral commentary. They just sort of, you know, shared the story and let you make the judgments, okay? Which is why it's so nice to have the New Testament to really make this clear. But there's a, there's a bigger thing going on here that you have to understand. The Old Testament writers themselves, Moses, David, who wrote a bunch of the Psalms, these guys did not themselves have a clear revelation of who God is. And as a result, they did not have nearly as clear a picture of right and wrong as we do today. They had the Ten Commandments, so they knew murder was wrong. They knew, you know, adultery was wrong. But by not knowing who Jesus was. They did not have a clear picture of God. The whole thing about loving your enemy and, and the importance of forgiveness, some of those things, they just, they didn't have that revelation of the, to the clarity that we have it now because we have Jesus in the New Testament. That's just a fact. Like I said before, David wrote most of the Psalms, you know, some beautiful Psalms, powerful prayers of repentance and forgiveness and intercession and worship. 
and yet he lived his whole life in vile polygamy and all kinds of sexual stuff. How could he have done that? How could he have gotten away with it? Because he didn't know better, okay? He didn't have the clarity we have because of Jesus. Same with Moses, okay? Moses had these massive experiences with God. He saw God do miracles, and yet Moses himself allows for slavery, okay? Look, let me just show you. There's a bunch of passages in Scripture I could show you, but Moses himself allowed for slavery. Look at Leviticus 25, and I could show you others. And, and so this is a man of God writing this, okay? Look what he writes. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. Moses is writing this in the Bible. Yeah, you're allowed to buy slaves. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. I mean, this is, you know, do you think Jesus is in favor? Do you think God is in favor of slavery? And the answer is, you, see, and this is where Christians get confused. We read in the Old Testament, we go, well, Maybe a little bit, like not today, but maybe was it? No, let me just tell you flat out, no. The Jesus is God. The fruits of the Spirit are Jesus. We have the full revelation, okay? Jesus hates slavery. God was grieved by slavery, and yet Moses and the Israelites allowed for it explicitly in Scripture. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. And of course, we could look at history and we could see God moving within the slavery of Israel to make it uh, more humane. But having said that, humane slavery is still horrible. Any kind of slavery is horrible. And yet Moses and David and others in the Old Testament allowed for it. Now, why again did this happen? Because Jesus had not yet been revealed. God was taking the Old Testament people on a journey. He met them where they were at in a culture that was saturated with violence and misogyny and patriarchalism and, and sexual stuff and all this stuff. And God meets them where, they, where they're at and he's taking them on a journey out. He's moving them out. Now, often people will criticize the Old Testament. They'll say, well, why didn't God just tell them? Like, why didn't he just smack down, get rid of this stuff right off the bat? And my question to you is, would they have been able to receive it if he had? Like, is that how God works? You want to know what I believe? I'm going to put this up on the screen. Accommodation, this theological term I often bring up, accommodation. God took the Old Testament authors as far as he could, considering where they were at and that they didn't have Jesus. I'm just going to say that again. Accommodation. God took the Old Testament authors as far as he could, considering where they were at and that they didn't have Jesus. The truth is, the Old Testament authors and people needed Jesus just as badly as we do. And God met them where they were at, and there was a lot of ignorance there, and things were not clear. And so, yes, they allowed for things and did things in the Old Testament that horrified and grieved God deeply. I mean, without Jesus coming to earth, who could ever have figured out that God loves his enemies? I mean, Matthew 5, right? Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you think you know what God is like, but I say to you, I'm here now, I'm going to tell you, it's a lot, I'm a lot different than you thought I was. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, why? Why does Jesus want us to love our enemies? Is it because he's just a goody two-shoes 
and he does whatever he wants to his enemies, but we have to be good to our enemies. No, that's not why. Next verse. So that, why? That's the because. So that, because. Why does God want us to love our, our enemies? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, we're supposed to look like him. Sons are supposed to have a resemblance to their parents. You know, kids, right? Kids are supposed to look like their parents to some extent. Okay? Sons of your father in heaven. We're supposed to look like God. He's not just telling us to love our enemies because it's some random thing he wants to torture us with. It's because that's who he is. For, another because, because for, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He loves his enemies. And he says, if you're going to be my kids, you're supposed to have some resemblance. And then he goes on. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what, are, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I just want to tell you something right there. Uh, first of all, you're never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. Not till the resurrection. When Jesus is saying that, it's not that he expects that we will achieve perfection. Not at all. It's that he's giving us the goal to shoot for. At least we know what, what direction, at least we know what right and wrong is. At least we know we're supposed to love our enemies so we can pray and ask him for help. God, help me to love my enemies. That's what perfection looks like. Now, we're not going to get perfected in our behavior until the resurrection. But at least we know the direction we should be going because that's who God is. Okay? Now, none of this was obvious in the Old Testament. By the way, you will find flashes of it breaking through in the Old Testament. You can find, you know, in Leviticus, you can find a verse surrounded by all kinds of other laws about, you know, menstruation and animals and scapegoats. You will find a verse that talks about you know, doing good to your enemies. And an exodus buried in among some of the things about, you know, stoning uh, a, a person who rebels against their parents and things like that. You will find things about helping your enemies' animals if they get stuck in the ditch. You will find flashes of that brilliance breaking through in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. If you didn't have the New Testament, if you didn't have Jesus and you just read through the Old Testament, would you come out of it with a clear understanding that the most important thing is God's heart is to love his enemies? And the answer is no, you wouldn't. Not because God has changed. He's the same God today as he always was. The point is, in the Old Testament, they didn't have that full revelation yet. The full revelation is in Jesus. And so the New Testament is our guidebook. It's in the New Testament where we, where we learn what he's like and what we are supposed to live like. Okay? So, and by the way, if we go back to verse 43, you can see that. You have heard that it was said. They were getting taught by the religious leaders out of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I know that's what you heard. And I know that's what you think, but you need to see this in a new light. Okay? Now, what happens now when we read these stories like Genesis 34, Genesis 38, Numbers 31, and on and on and on and on. Joshua, 2 Samuel. What happens now when we read these stories with the Jesus lens? What do we get out of them? We're not supposed to just put them in practice. Like, don't go and do what Jacob and Levi and Simeon did. But we put the Jesus lens on. One thing we know for sure. I'm going to put this up on the screen. The Jesus lens shows us that all genocide, slavery, polygamy, misogyny, and abuse in the Old Testament are horrifying and grievous to God. I can't say it enough. Just because it's in the Old Testament doesn't mean God approves of it. Okay? Regardless of whether the Old Testament passage makes that clear or not, they often don't make it clear that something is wrong. They often just tell the story and move on. But when we take the Jesus lens, we can see... That's not Jesus. I can put the fruits of the Spirit on there. That's not Jesus. 
So you say, well, what are we supposed to get out of these stories then? Like, if we are just, well, maybe we should just stay in the New Testament. Let me tell you now, when you put the lens of Jesus over the Old Testament, let me tell you just a few things, and there's many others, that, you're gonna, that you can find in the Old Testament that are so good for our souls today. Four things. I'm just going to put them up on the screen. When you put the Jesus lens over the Old Testament, four things we learn. First of all, we learn that humankind is really messed up and we desperately need a Savior. Oh my goodness. We need a Savior. Jacob needed a Savior. David needed a Savior. Moses needed a Savior. You and me need a Savior. Put the Jesus lens on and as you read through the Old Testament, allow yourself to be overwhelmed with that, with that understanding. Man, do we human beings need a Savior. Nobody's good enough if Jesus doesn't help us. Number two, we should be overwhelmed again and again. And this week, as I meditated on Genesis 34, I was not at all attracted to anything Jacob or Levi or Simeon did. It's a horrible story. I was disgusted. But do you know what did happen? As I thought about that story, I was struck again by God's mercy and patience. And his mercy and patience just touched me again. I'm like, if how did he not just destroy these people? How did he not just lose his temper and just destroy them? And, and he actually allows these people to continue living and gently is moving them along and bringing about his messianic prophecies through them. His mercy and patience, by the way, his mercy and patience are for you as well. And those horrific stories can in some ways be a deep encouragement to us that, oh my goodness, if God can put up with them, he can put up with us. Another thing, when we put the Jesus lens over the Old Testament, we see the deep commitment that God has to humankind. Why not just wipe everybody out? He's committed to not wiping us out. He's committed to walking with us and pulling us out of that death and sin and grossness. He's very patient in that. Not only does he not destroy us, he comes and then dies himself for us. Incredible. And lastly, God meets us where we're at and works with us from where we're at. So you don't need to compare yourself to someone else. You don't need to be intimidated by anyone else. God wants to meet you just like he met those Old Testament saints. He wants to meet you where you're at and then he wants to take you out of that sin and junk that you're struggling with. And it might take your entire lifetime, but he is committed to walking with you for your lifetime as well. I want to close with a prayer. We're going to put it up on the screen again. I love to pray prayers from scripture and we're going to do another one here. I'm going to read it to you. And then we're going to pray it. It's from Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. These are powerful prayers. These are spirit-breathed prayers for the church, for us as believers today. People have been praying them for a couple thousand years. So I'm going to read it once. Let the word soak into your soul. And then we're going to pray it. Okay? Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, 
According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're going to pray it now. Let those words sink in one more time. You might want to close your eyes if that helps you to pray. Or you might want to say these words aloud with me as you pray. But wherever you are, what a beautiful prayer. For this reason, Father, we bow our knees before you. From whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That according to the riches of your glory, that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Jesus Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we being rooted and grounded in love, Jesus, we want to be grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend and understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not the external rules, Jesus, but your goodness and love for people. Now to him is who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.